we'll consider that again in our scripture reading, Hebrews 13, verses 18 through 25. We are finally, after four years of working through the book of Hebrews, at the last verses of the book. We'll spend today looking at verses 20 and 21 of Hebrews 13, and then the rest of the concluding words we'll look at next week as we finally wrap up the series through the book of Hebrews. But for now, we'll hear the reading of God's word, Hebrews 13, 18 through 25, and keep in mind that the text for today is just verses 20 and 21. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Take one more moment to pray. Father in heaven, send your Holy Spirit that inspired this word long ago. We get so close to the author, the human author, him even referring to himself as I in the first person in this section that we've read. But we don't know who the human author is. We do know the divine author is the Holy Spirit. And we pray for that. Holy Spirit, to come now, enlighten our minds in the truths of Scripture, encourage us, and comfort us. Through your word we pray. Amen. It's a fairly astonishing thing to stop and realize that the world around us is a world crafted to be in relationship to us. Everything you interact with all around you is, and it's not everything, but so much of what you interact all around you is, is designed to relate to you. It's actually designed to work for you. You can ask sort of goofy questions like, why, aren't our, why do our cell phones fit in our pockets instead of them being 100 feet long and 30 feet wide? Why do we live in houses that look like houses? Why do our, why do our automobiles have uh, seats for different passengers in the way that they do? And why do the roads look the way they look? Why do we use measurements like feet and inches and even miles to describe various things? It's all of these things, if you think about it, are designed to relate to you, to work for you, the seat that you're sitting in the building that you are worshiping in, the car you'll drive home in, the road that you'll drive on. 
They are designed to work in relation to you. And it's kind of a humbling thing to stop and think about that, that God has made you in his image and has designed a world in which it works for you to live and move and have your being. And as you look around, you can look at something like a building to worship in or a chair to sit in, and you can realize, wow, this is, this is actually made for me. It is made for me to make use of. It is me, made to be in relationship to me. And as amazing as that is, what is even more astonishing and amazing is that God himself relates to you. God draws near to you. There are all different ways in which God could speak about himself in ways that would be beyond us. And we use those words. God is infinite. He is infinite. He's not finite. He's not limited to time and space the way we are. He's unchangeable, unlike you who are always changing. Sometimes you're well, sometimes you're sick, sometimes you're hungry, sometimes you're full, sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're sad. God is unchanging. He is not like that. He is not changing the way you are always changing. He is infinite. He is unchangeable. He is eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, without a beginning, without an ending. He is unlike you in all those different ways. But God doesn't stop there, does he? He comes to you and speaks to you about himself in a way that you can relate to. In a way that enables you to draw near to him through his word. We don't just have God, but we have God in relation to us. And that is what we have in the first verse of our text, verse chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 20, God in relation to us. And then in verse 21, God at work within us. You'll notice in reading this benediction that comes at the end of the book of Hebrews that we're going to focus on this week before we get to the other final words of the book of Hebrews next week, that the subject throughout these two verses is God. The God of peace. He is the actor behind everything in these two verses. He's the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus. And then it goes into how that God, who is in relation to us, is at work within us. He equips you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the subject throughout the verses, and the verse conclude with Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the verses catch us up in the middle. They speak about God being the subject who is acting and moving, the God of action, but we are in relationship to him. And that's the majesty and the glory of verse 20. Each of these terms bring us to reflect on the different ways in which God, who is transcendent, God who is 
infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God who is Alpha and Omega, from everlasting to everlasting. God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, is your God. He's for you. He relates to you. He draws near to you. And the significance of that shouldn't be lost in this very first expression that we, lead, we, that we read of. The God of peace. Consider that. God's word comes to you and says, you know the way you should think of the holy, holy, holy God. You know the way you should think of the God whom you have sinned against every single day of your life. Do you know how you should think of the God whom you have rebelled against? The God whom, if it was left up to you, you would be an enemy of? You need to see that he is a God of peace. He has established peace with you. That's the glory of the assurance of pardon that we had earlier in the service. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of our confession of faith about the obedience and the death that Christ has lived on our behalf and gone to his death to suffer the judgment that we deserve, establishing full peace with God. God isn't against you. God is at peace with you. His relationship with you is one of peace. God is in relationship to you in a relationship of peace through the work of his son. But the verse goes on from God simply being the God of peace. It goes into the fact that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that God in history forever and unalterably, irreversibly, look upon the atonement provided by the Lord Jesus Christ and confirms its complete satisfaction, its complete efficaciousness, its effectiveness. The fact that he went to the cross and died for sins, but death couldn't hold him because he himself knew no sin. So this God of peace brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. You think about that and what we're saying, that this is about God who relates to us, not just God out there, not just all-powerful, almighty God, but your covenant Lord and Savior God. Your God who comes to you and says, Call me Father, Call me God of peace. Call me Lord and Savior. This God entered into history. This God who is the God of the living and not of the dead. This God who is God of life. Who has brought things forth into existence through his creative word and power. Became a human being like you in order that he might live the life you ought to have lived and die the death that you deserve to die and in so doing suffer the wrath and judgment of God 
on your sins, though he didn't commit those sins. All of that is packed in to God saying, I am your God. I am the God of peace through Jesus Christ, who raised up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of an eternal covenant. And I think we should stop and sort of take inventory of some stages in the Bible. It becomes familiar with us. It becomes familiar to us to start thinking about our God as the shepherd. And we sang that before, Psalm 23. And that psalm certainly makes clear, the Lord is my shepherd. Sort of the first installment of what it means to have the Lord as shepherd. We find a huge exposition of it, at least, in Psalm 23. And it's a, a theme that comes up over and over, isn't it, throughout the Old Testament. Of course, with King David pointing forward to Jesus Christ, with King David being a shepherd himself. And other language in the Psalms that point to Jesus, point to God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, as a shepherd. But then in John 10, what does Jesus say? Not just, I am the Lord, your shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. Not just the Lord who is shepherd, but the good shepherd. And now we come to Hebrews 13, verse 20. And it's not just the Lord who shepherd, shepherd. It's not just the good shepherd of John chapter 10, but now this is after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not just the Lord who is shepherd and not just the good shepherd, but the great shepherd of the sheep. Why is he now the great shepherd of the sheep? Because as shepherd, he has gone to death itself and come out alive, being raised again from the dead as the great shepherd of the sheep. So now you draw to close to your God and you say he's not just a God of peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just the God who has been brought back from the dead, but he is my great shepherd. And you consider the comfort that comes from this. What is there that can really make you afraid when the great shepherd of the sheep is your shepherd? He has gone to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He has had the whole world turn against him. He has been abandoned by all of his disciples and betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, to the God with which he knows infinite communion from all eternity. He looked upon him and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where the great shepherd went. And it didn't culminate in death. Instead, death culminated in resurrection. The great shepherd can lead you to and through death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For the great shepherd is with me. Raised again from the dead by the God of peace. The God with whom he made peace. 
by his own death. And that shines light on this glorious race through the blood of an eternal covenant. Can you imagine? I know we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, the human author. But can you imagine the excitement that he must have had in writing this? Just reflecting on the Old Testament, all of those different sacrifices, all of those different days of atonement, all of those different slain animals, the blood of bulls and goats, and a different priest standing by the altar with a different sacrifice on every different day, over and over these sacrifices after sacrifices after sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizing they're no longer necessary. Worship will go on. But it won't take place in the way it did in the Old Testament. There won't be an altar. There won't be a blood sacrifice. Because an eternal sacrifice was made. The blood of the eternal covenant has been shed. Jesus Christ, not a Lamb of God, but the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of his people has come and shed his divine blood. The blood that is the blood of the eternal covenant. No more sacrifice needed. Atonement provided in full. Salvation completely accomplished. Making God, God of peace. A God in whom you rest the great shepherd of the sheep, God, almighty God, who relates to you through these different titles and draws near to you. Can't help but think of what was already said in the book of Hebrews back in chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That one offering was the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant, the blood that satisfied holy, holy, holy God, making him, for you who trust in the great shepherd of the sheep, God of peace. God in relationship to us. What an astonishing thought that this God, who is almighty, who is the creator of all things, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, is concerned to relate to you, to draw near to you, to draw you to himself, to consider who he is. This is why our theology isn't high and lofty. It is high and lofty, but it's also practical. It informs our lives. It has everything to do with how we live. It informs every last moment of our lives, and that's what happens in verse 21. Look at the turn that takes place as we go from God in relationship to us in verse 20. 
to God at work within us. In verse 21, May this God, this God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you. It's for you. Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Before moving into that, I just want to call your attention to all that we have been talking about and to remind you that there is no other God that offers what our God offers. There is no other almighty, all-powerful, creator-redeeming God who enters into history to save a people for himself and does everything necessary to save people from their sins, including becoming the great shepherd of the sheep by going to his own atoning death and then rising again from that death. This is the God you need. Consider that we need a certain sort of Savior and that God is that Savior. He prescribes himself for you in your need. You look at your life, you take inventory of what you need, and it doesn't take long to realize you need forgiveness, you need grace, you need righteousness, you need eternal life, you need hope beyond the grave. And God is all of that. But he's not just God who relates to us. He's God who works within us. And this is just astonishing again that this God, all-powerful God, would be concerned to take you and me. Who are we? What is man that you are mindful of him, says the psalmist. Who are we, me and my little self, me and my little life, me and my little existence, which I've used mostly to sin against God? And what do we read here? This God, this God of peace, equips you in every good thing do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight. He's concerned with you. The details of your life are on his mind. He planned them out before eternity. Now I have to admit that there is something slightly unsettling about this verse, verse 21. We've been dwelling on the fact that God is the subject. He is the actor behind these two verses. And you'll notice in verse 21 that you really don't have a say in things, do you? Isn't that a little unsettling? God who is all-powerful, God who is all-knowing, God who is in control of all things, says, come to me, trust in me, I am God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. I'm going to equip you in every good thing to do his will. Not your will. His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Not what's pleasing in your sight. What's pleasing in his sight. 
A little bit unsettling, isn't it? If you're, if you're honest, you look back at life, you consider various situations that you find yourself in right now, all the different twists and turns that life takes, all the different twists and turns represented by this specific congregation, heartaches, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, times of excitement, but also times of discouragement, sickness, illness, affliction, trial, struggle, all these different things. And then God says, yes, I'm in control of all of these things. And by the way, it's not up to you. I'm working out in you things according to my will and what is pleasing in my sight. A little bit unsettling. But ultimately, don't you see that it's reassuring? It brings us to that point where we say, that is unsettling. I, I'm not in this for my will be done. I'm not in this to do what is pleasing in my sight. That's actually part of what I surrender by going to the God of peace and calling on him as the great shepherd of the sheep. I realize he's the shepherd and I'm not. He leadeth me. And it's ultimately reassuring. It's actually more than reassuring. It's exciting. It brings us to the point as children of God in which we say, it's not the way I would have written it up. I don't know the reason for all of the twists and turns. At least not the specific reason, not the immediate reason. There are so many times in life I get to the point where I just say, I'm not in control. But God is. And it's ultimately reassuring. It means you can rest in the God of peace who sent forth his own son to shed his divine blood and become the blood of the eternal covenant for your sake. And you can follow him as Lord, Jesus as Lord, realizing he's already taken care of all of the most important and essential things for you. And time will consistently tell how he is, in fact, working all things together, not just for some ultimate good, but for your good. Only he can do this. As the God of peace, the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, our Lord. God who relates to us, God who works within us, and such a glorious finale to these two verses. You know, you might think for a moment, we're talking about Almighty God. And throughout these verses, he is relating, drawing near to you, and speaking about his work within you and among you. And all that he has done for you in the person of Christ and the blood of the eternal covenant. So isn't it glorious that the final verse isn't about you, but about him who is worthy of all worship and glory? Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that what this is all about? 
God looks upon a people in desperate need of salvation, draws near to those people through Jesus Christ, his Son, providing full atonement for them, offering complete forgiveness to them, becoming to us who are by nature children of wrath, instead becoming to us our God of peace, making us those who in a small way, bit by bit, piece by piece, become more and more transformed into doing the will of God here on earth, even as it is in heaven. But it doesn't stop with us. Instead, our hearts and minds are open to call upon the name of the Lord in worship and say it's all about Jesus to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that while we are not yet in heaven worshiping alongside the angels, at least not in a way that we can see visibly, we pray that you would make us aware of that reality, that we are worshiping the God of heaven alongside angels. And as we come to you as the good and great shepherd of the sheep, we pray that you would lead us even through the valley of the shadow of death in a way in which we fear no evil. That you would lead us by still waters and green pastures, reminding us each step of the way that you are with us. That you are our God of peace, in whom we trust.